Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take our time through this chapter. This is a pivotal chapter to understand the rest of the Bible. So I don't want to gloss through this. I don't want to skim over things. I want to nail things down because once you learn these principles, it'll help you with the rest of the Bible and understanding certain themes that carry through the entire 66 books of the Bible. What we're going to be looking at is the consequences of acting independent from God. And this is part two. And the reason that that title is there is because Adam and Eve are now going to act independently from God. They have, and they have succumbed to the temptation that Satan has thrown their way, and now they're going to act independent. So what you're going to see following this, verse 7 on, is the consequences of acting independently from God. This, folks, is a very tough chapter. And you're going to say, why is it so tough? It's not going to be hard to understand but the implications are very difficult to live out. And let me explain what I mean by that. You're going to look at the consequences that has affected humankind ever since Adam and Eve fell, how it has affected you in your own personal life. And I think you could probably relate to me as, as we look back at our lives, there's a lot of things I regret doing. There's a lot of mistakes I made, a lot of bad decisions I made, a lot of things I would have done differently. And I'm now 45, and I'm living with those bad decisions. And it's a daily reminder to me. Now, there's no doubt God can redeem what the locusts have eaten, and he does. They meant it for evil, and he means it for good. There's no doubt about that. But you and I both know, man, if I could go back in time and speak to me, at, hey, I'm you at 45. Let me tell you what goes down and what decisions you don't need to make when what you need to do the opposite of what you were planning on doing. I would love to be able to do that. that. Wouldn't that be awesome if you could go back and talk to yourself at 13 or 17 or 21 before you did anything? You say, put on the brakes, Brandon. Don't do that because, boy, how do you're going to pay for that one. I wish I could do that, but I can't. All I can do is... Go from here and understand what I have to do in order to, it may not be ideal, but we can make life good though still. We can do things God's way and he can restore things back to me. And I get that and you do too. But this is what makes this message so difficult because you and I sometimes sit here and we we realize the consequences of what we're living with. And it hurts sometimes. It deeply wounds us. And uh, here's what I want. I don't want happening to not only you, but myself is to do what Adam and Eve did when the consequences hit them. Because what they did is exactly what we will do. And it's the wrong move. Now, I want to explore that a little bit today. Okay. So we'll take our time and do some heavy application on this. So let's look at the overall general context of where we're at. We've covered these other passages. Let's do some backtracking a little bit. Let's just read where we're at. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And we talked about this last week and went into this. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Doubt. 
And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which uh, is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. She minimizes it, she adds things to it, and, and she maximizes the, uh, the restriction. And we talked about that last week, so here we are at. And then they succumb to eating it. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die denial for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil it's a half truth right there so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise lust of the flesh lust of the eyes pride of life she took of its fruit and ate she also gave it to her husband with her and he ate so that's where we left off last week and we explored all this now, at this point, the minute they have eaten the forbidden fruit, all of their life now changes instantaneously. They spiritually die right there on the spot, even though they're physically alive, because now that sin, that trespass, has separated them from God. And all the consequences start flooding into their life. So now we're going to pick up the story in verse 7. And watch these consequences play out. Verse 7 says this. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Let's just stop there and explore that just a little bit. The first consequence of when they trespassed against God and sinned against God is indeed their eyes were open. The half-truth that Satan gave them, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, is a half-truth. Their eyes did open, but... Instead of being like God who knows good and evil, they now know evil experientially because they took it upon themselves to become a God unto themselves and dictate that they're going to determine right and wrong for themselves without God. So this is a knowledge that they now have experienced. They have experienced evil. Now, how do I relate this to us? Well, I can tell you this. You know how people learn? They learn by experience. And unfortunately, it's a negative thing sometimes. When you tell kids, hey, don't do that, you're going to get hurt. What do they do? They actually will try it out. Do you realize that 60 to 65% of people who are told don't do this, whether they're adults or children, guess what they inevitably do? They do it. And then they get burned. And they said, well, I told you we were going to get burned. And they think they're the exception to the rule. A lot of us have been told early in life, don't do this, don't do that. And we, you know what? We brush it off and we put our head in the buzzsaw. And it just buzzes us. And someone says, I told you you're going to get buzzsawed. But we did it anyway. Part of the human experience is we want to be a God unto ourselves. We don't want to be told this is right or wrong. We want to experience whether or not. It is. So they, so they're, they're now, ha they have what's called ethical autonomy. They're making the decisions for themselves. And notice the first thing they realize when they have their autonomous ethical morality is that they realize that they have no clothes on. And you think, what is the significance of that? Well, in the Hebrew culture, to be naked was a complete shaming experience. You never wanted to be seen naked. Now, think about our culture now. Now, nakedness is celebrated, isn't it? Right? The kind of clothes they wear. 
I was talking to someone earlier today. You can't hardly find uh, little girls' clothes because they're so revealing now. Have you noticed that? It's ridiculous. They're sexualizing our little girls. So they celebrate nakedness. But in the Hebrew culture, you did not celebrate nakedness. It was a sign of shame. And that's what's bearing into this. That they, they, once they get this autonomy, they realize they're naked and they're naked with each other. So they realize now the first thing that hits them is they have a different relationship between Adam and Eve. Something has changed. And the shame and the guilt of being naked and seen by another human being makes them want to do something about this. They want to cover up, as you'll see. So basically what it's caused is a barrier between Adam and Eve. This is the first relational barrier that humans will now experience. Let me explain this. Now, as in, in 2019, one of the things we fight in Christianity is barriers between one another. Okay. Even in a marriage relationship or in a church relationship or whatever, there are barriers there. And unless the couple or the people are willing to be vulnerable to take the coverings away, that means to be vulnerable, to be naked, so to speak, in front of someone, to be vulnerable, they really won't connect. So this happens a lot of times in marriages. The couple will not be vulnerable with themselves, with each other, and hence that barrier gets erected. So people who don't share what's going on really inside of them, their hurts, their faults, they don't want to become naked, so to speak, in front of other people. They put up barriers and walls with coverings. We'll talk about that. But it's fundamental to relationships. In order to have a good relationship, you have to be naked, so to speak, spiritually with the other person. You have to know what I'm thinking. You have to know how I feel. You have to know where I'm going with this in order to be open. And a lot of people just simply don't experience this. And they'll become lonely. And when you become lonely, you will find outlets for that loneliness. And when you see these people involved in outlets because they're starving for connection, it's because they don't want connection because they're afraid of what people will see inside. They don't want anyone to see their nakedness. So they cover. So this is the first human barrier, and it starts... Now, you'll see this barrier between them and God as well, but what's the first thing they do to cover themselves up? Well, it says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Well, the fig leaf, this is a Middle Eastern context, right, as Moses is writing this. The fig leaf in the Middle East was the biggest leaf in that area. Of all the trees, the fig leaf had the biggest leaf, and you can see how big they are and why they would do this. Now, notice that they sewed them together. This is their own performance. They're doing this themselves to cover themselves up. And they made coverings. Now, the idea of coverings, you can't see this in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's girdles. And the covering covered this area of themselves. Okay? I want you to notice that. They didn't make coverings for their head, their chest, their back, their legs. They made coverings of an apron of fig leaves right here. I wonder why. Why is it 
that they made coverings for that area to cover up their genitals. There's something there. What is it? See, the coverings obviously are going to hide their shame and guilt. It's going to be now a barrier between them as well. It's going to have a harder time to connect with each other. But I want you to notice they're covering up their genitals. And there's a reason. In the dominion mandate, God said, be fruitful and multiply. When he told them that, they were naked. They didn't even notice they were naked. They didn't know there was any barriers. They had no shame, no guilt. So now they realize, the first thing they realize is that commandment, in order to do that commandment of be fruitful and multiply, they now understand they're going to pass on their guilt and shame to their kids. That it's going to be like a cancer. By doing the dominion mandate, it's inevitable that the seeds of rebellion will be passed on and it's symbolized by the genitals, the sexual parts of procreation. And hence, this is where the theological understanding of that we pass on our sin nature to our kids and they will pass it on to their kids and has been happening ever since Adam and Eve. Well, this is the first thing it hits them. We're going to pass this on. That's a scary thing for a parent. Very scary to realize that our kids, if we don't break the cycle in our lives of some of the patterns and behaviors that we're doing, those patterns and behaviors will get passed on to them and you will watch in your adult kids your behavior. That is the scariest thing as a parent to watch, that he's acting like mom or she's acting like dad. To see that breaks your heart because you don't want to pass on your junk. You don't want that to go on. You want it to stop and you would do everything to stop it, but most people don't know how to stop it. So what happens is the kids pick it up and their grandkids pick it up, and the kids keep moving down the line. Now, that's just behavior. Now, I'm talking about the sin nature. The sin nature is a whole different animal. That's intrinsic in them. They're, they're just coming out of the womb with a sin nature. And Adam and Eve recognize it, and they're so embarrassed. They're so shamed. They're so guilt that this is going to happen. They cover their genitals up to hide that guilt. Spiritual death has occurred. So let's do an application before we even move on. This is what's called real godly shame and guilt. Okay? Real godly shame and guilt is a violation of a known law of God, and you violate it, and you know you shouldn't have done it. That's where real shame and guilt comes from. Now, with real shame and guilt, the way you rectify this is to repent and ask for forgiveness. And he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and cleanse you from unrighteousness. He may not take the consequences away, but you can be forgiven by confession. Okay, that's real shame and guilt, and it convicts you. The Holy Spirit will convict you. What you did was a violation. Ask for forgiveness, repent, confess. But here's what happens, and this is another kind of a secondary application. What a lot of Christians face in their life is man-made shame and guilt that stems from either their family of origin or trauma or themselves or society. And they have a hyperactive conscience that's not in line with Scripture, 
and they feel guilty and they feel ashamed because they don't have their parents' approval, let's say, or they don't have society's approval. For instance, you and I are taking stands against society today. We're taking it against gay marriage, LGBT. We're taking a stands against this anti-Semitism we see. And the list goes on and on and on, right? We take those stands. Society is going to push back on us and say, you're intolerant. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're homophobic. If you don't have enough maturity in your Christianity to take that, guess what it'll make you do? You will feel guilty and you will let society shame you with their standards and you will shut up and you will commit the sin of silence. Well, I don't want to push back, so I won't, I'm not going to say anything. That is societal guilt. You have to be biblical enough to say, no, you're wrong. I'm standing for the truth. And I'm, you can call me every name under the book, but I'm standing for what Jesus says in the story. Okay. But a lot of people are not even realizing that's happening to them. They don't realize that their family of origin is putting shame and guilt on them. You know, in some, in some families, they have their own set of rules, their own Ten Commandments, so to speak. And you're like, what do you mean? Well, in our family, we're all accountants. Everybody in my family is going to be an accountant. And whether you're a girl, boy, straight A or C student, everybody's going to be an accountant. Because in this family, you're an accountant. That's a family rule. So what if the person says, you know what? I want to work at the bowling alley. I don't want to be an accountant. Well, all of our family, the Joneses here, we all are accountants. How dare you want to work at the bowling alley at Westchester Bowl? How dare you want to do that? And what if the guy goes for it? Then he's looked down, and so he feels guilt or shame from his family of origin because he's bucking the system. So there's two things you have to discern in your life. Is this godly guilt that I've trespassed God? Okay, I know how to rectify that. Or is this family of origin junk that my family's putting on me or society's putting on me or my spouse is putting on me or a coach is putting on me or whatever it is? And if that's the case, and you feel still feel guilty from society, your family of origin, you have an overactive conscience. And all you need to do is drop your family's Ten Commandments. Your mom and dad are not God. Only Jesus is. Only what he says matters. Don't let your family of origin or your trauma or whatever society put guilt to where you start putting on the fig leaves and coverings. doesn't work like that. Let's stay biblical, okay? Let's stay on the right path. But this is what happens. But let's talk about what, what, what we do. If we don't respond correctly, whether biblically to trespasses or society or family of origin, we will start using counterfeit solutions to cover us up from the guilt and shame we feel. We don't want to be vulnerable or hence naked in front of somebody. And so we will start using fig leaf solutions to hide. What do you mean? Whatever we use to cover our guilt and shame up. Now, real simply, I'll get in more into this at the end of the sermon, but sometimes it's money to cover it up. 
Sometimes it's power. Sometimes it's prestige. Things behind our name. Degrees behind our name. Performance-based types of activities. Because notice what they did. They had fig leaves. And what did they do with them? They sewed them to make garments. That's called performance. They didn't go to God to rectify the situation, did they? They took it upon themselves to cover themselves up by performance, and that's they, they, they manufactured themselves performance-based coverings. This is why you, so, you see so many people get into workaholism. Because why are they a workaholic? Because they're using performance to cover themselves up. They don't want you to see the nakedness. They want you to see the fig leaves. So they will put the fig leaves as a front. I want you to see that person, not the naked person. So we'll do it through performance or money or whatever. Whatever can perform for them, that's what they'll use. That's a fig leaf solution. We'll get more into that. But just understand that's the principle that we're working with. Let's return to the text. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That little statement is profound. And I want to unpack that just a bit. They heard the sound, or what you should say in the Hebrew is kind of like the wind. They heard God, and and it says the Lord God. It's Yahweh Elohim. It's the personal God. Before, remember, in the temptation, Satan has only been using the word Elohim. He has not used the personal name of God. He's used just the generic because he's tried to distance Adam and Eve from God by making him him non-personal. They heard. The other way you can translate this is they heard the word of the Lord. What has happened is they've disobeyed the word of the Lord. Now they hear the word of the Lord. They hear the Lord walk. It's another way of translating this. I want you to notice it says that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The term walking in Hebrew, you can't see it in English. It's a uh, hitpael in Hebrew, which means that this is a habitual thing that the Lord has been doing with Adam and Eve. Explain that, Brandon. Well, he, he's habitually walking in the garden at a certain time of the day, in the cool of the day, or the wind of the day. And the idea here is, it's not in the morning. A lot of people mistranslate this. It's not in the morning. It's in the evening, where the evening breeze has come up right before sundown. So it's basically at the end of the day that God would actually come there in his presence in the Shekinah and walk with Adam and Eve in that cool of the day and fellowship with them. Now, I don't know how long this lasted with them. We don't know. The rabbis say sometimes 70 days. It could have been 30, 40, whatever. We don't know. But the Hebrew indicates this was a habitual pattern with God of them walking with him in fellowship during this period of time of the day. It's a daily occurrence. And the term walking, that term in Hebrew, it has a whole connotation of so many things. Walking with God in the Hebrew culture, means righteous fellowship through obedience. It indicates the person is saved, 
but it also indicates that the person is walking in obedience to the Lord and maintaining that fellowship through the obedience. It's the idea of walking in the light. You'll always see like Enoch walked with God or Abraham walked with God. It's the idea of I conformed my life righteously so I can have fellowship with Yahweh. It's not an indication of salvation. It's assumed salvation. It's an indication of fellowship. In order to have fellowship with God or Jesus, you must be walking obediently in your sanctification. You might be saved in everything, but if you're not walking obediently, you'll be out of fellowship with the Lord. And so this is where this is all going, is that they lost this fellowship, but they hear it. Now, what did they do? And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. Of, of Yahweh Elohim. Okay, so notice the two-step way. We manufacture performance through fig leaves, and then the next thing, we that's for Adam and Eve in relationship, and now the next relationship is I've got I've to stay away from Yahweh. I've got to get away from him. So their, their, their solution to this is to hide from him, to hide. Because they, they got to have, there's a barrier now. They realize they're spiritually dead. They realize they have been separated some form or fashion. They realize it. And they, ha- they have that guilt and shame. And so they separate from him. They go and hide. Now I want you to think about that. When we have guilt or shame for what we have done legitimately, the first reaction that you'll have is to get away from God. Get away from his presence. So I, so here's what you'll, you'll take a guess. When someone's messed up with God in fellowship, you can see it in their behavior. It's not hard to see. And listen, guys, don't buy the line when people say, I love Jesus so much. Me and Jesus are like this. When they say that, don't believe anything they say. They will spiritualize their life. You want to see if them and, them and Jesus are tight? You'll see it in their behavior. Not what they say. Here's what you'll see. They'll walk in the cool of the day with Yahweh. They will be where he's at. And where he is at is where they met with him. But now they're not where he's at. They are hiding. They are away. So, simple terms, 2019, do you want to know the first sign when someone's starting to get away from God? You won't see them at church. You won't see them at Bible study. They will just start drifting away. And you'll say, where's so-and-so? Where's so-and-so? I don't know. They start drifting. They're not where Yahweh is. Where does Yahweh, where does Jesus want believers in America on Sunday mornings? Simple, where the church is together, that's where. It's not a legalistic thing, but if you want to be where God is at, you go to his assembly. You go to the ecclesia. You can't practice the ecclesia on your own because all the gifts are here in the body. It's not a building, it's people. Believers, you will notice that when someone is hiding from Yahweh, they will not be with other believers. 
they will start separating themselves from other believers. That's the first sign. Because they, that's what Adam and Eve did. They hid. And notice where they hid. Look at the text real quick. Among the trees of the garden. Don't miss that. They're seeking refuge away from Yahweh into the very things that brought them down. Oh, my Lanta. You got to be kidding me. The very thing that brought you down is the very place you're hiding. Oh, oh, so you mean to tell me that someone would use drugs to hide? Someone would use alcohol to hide? Someone would use pornography to hide? Yes, the very transgression is giving them a place to hide. That's how it works. That's why people can't get out of their sin a lot of times because they're hiding in their sin. Their sin becomes a place of escape for them. Oh, that's not good at all. Yeah, that's why it makes it so hard to get out of it. If someone's addicted to video games, let's say, that's a new phenomenon, by the way. They're addicted to playing video games and there's adults playing this stuff hours upon hours and upon hours in their mama and daddy's basements. And they won't get a job because they're playing Fortnite for eight hours a day. That's their job, apparently. And you think like, the, you think the, the, they're Peter Pans. They're the boy that never grew up, you know, that kind of thing. You know, go get a job, dude. But why? The game has become a trespass, but the game has become a place where the person is hiding from reality, from relationship, from God, from whatever. That's scary. That's real scary. That we can hide in the very thing that's caused our rebellion. Notice this tree theme. I don't want to get away from this because this is important. The tree theme is all over the Bible, by the way. God creates the trees in the garden to provide for them. He says, except that one, I don't want you to eat the knowledge of good and evil. But you can have everything else. So it's provision. But that one tree incites rebellion. The one restriction incites the rebellion. When we as human beings, even without a sin nature like Adam and Eve didn't have a sin nature, when we're told, don't touch that by God, guess what we want to do? I'm going to try it. It's, it's like insane that that's what we do, right? Don't do this. You're going to destroy your society. We do it. So it incites rebellion. Then it becomes a hiding place, the trees. Then what you'll see later on is God bars them from the tree of life. They're barred from it. And then later on, keep watching the tree theme keep playing itself out in the Bible. It will be the very tree that God has to reconcile himself to man on with the Messiah. Messiah will be put on a tree, a cross, wooden beam, in order to be cursed for us so that we can be reestablished with him and in book of Revelation be given access to the tree of life. 
The tree theme goes all the way through from Genesis to the book of Revelation. Follow the tree theme. Look all the implications. They're hiding now in the tree. The, ne the next phase, they will be barred from it. And then the next down the line, the Messiah will have to be crucified on a tree. Huh. The themes, you couldn't make that up. That's supernatural, by the way, to see that, that theme. Verse 9. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now, this is not the idea that God doesn't know where he's at. God is omniscient. He knows exactly where Adam and Eve is at. So, so God, uh, picture the, the mentality that God, the scene is that God is there where he's always met them. This is where we meet. This is our meeting place. But they're not there. God knows where he's at, but he calls out, Adam, where are you? Now, he knows where Adam's, but I want you to know who he's addressing. Who did he address first, Adam or Eve? Adam. Who initiated the sin, though? Eve. By God calling out, Adam, where are you? He doesn't say, Eve, where are you? What is God indicating? God works with spiritual authority as what he has set up. Eve and Adam broke the spiritual authority because Eve initiated, Adam stood there, stood there like a bump on a pickle and didn't do nothing about the whole situation, let it happen, and he ate too. Went, he went down with the ship. But when God gets in the situation, he addresses the spiritual head immediately. Adam. He doesn't go to Eve. He didn't even talk to Eve yet. Adam. Because he's addressing the authority. It's extremely important. So this term, where are you? It is a rhetorical device. It is basically a way of God initiating or trying to get Adam to confess. It's what God says to you and I when we get lost. He will say to you and I, Brandon, where are you? When you get lost in your life and you have those periods of time, you're like, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I, God will reach out and say, where are you? Because you're hiding. Where are you? You're, you're withdrawing. You're in the tree somewhere. You're escaping. Where are you? He's trying to pull us back to confess and get back in fellowship with him. So it's an act of grace on his part, no doubt about it. But the question is meant for Adam to realize, oh goodness, I am running. I am escaping. He knows where I'm at. I can't run from him. But it's for reconciliation. It's to elicit a confession. And God will do the same thing with us. When we've broken fellowship with him, the first thing he's going to say is, where are you? Where are you in this? Come on. So it is, I want you to see the graciousness in this. God didn't say, Adam, front and center, right now. I know what you did. It's over, man. You've blown it this time. You, I can't believe how stupid you were. I told you not to do it, and look what's happened to you. Did he do that? No. Where are you? Where are you? I want the confession. I want the reconciliation back. I, I, I lost you. See, God is searching for us all. He's searching for everyone because man is lost. And he's asking that to everybody. Where are you? Look at Adam's response. Verse 10. 
So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So again, there's confession. He has the shame. He realizes he's naked. He admits it. So the question that God had is, is, is eliciting the right response. No doubt about that. And he said, who told you you were naked? And that's a great question. Who said that to you? How did you know you had guilt and shame? Who told you this? Because it wasn't even Satan. Where did it come from? What told Adam he was naked? And Eve, the same. It's simple. Adam and Eve did not possess a conscience until they sinned. The minute they sinned, it elicited their conscience inside of them, and now they have a conscience. And now today, you and I have a conscience as well. But we initially were not created with it. It is The conscience, if you want to say, is kind of like a governor inside of us. And you can have a seared conscience that doesn't feel anything. You're like a sociopath. You don't feel guilty for anything. Or you can have a hyperactive conscience that is way beyond even the biblical standards, but goes, goes to family standards and whatnot. What we're trying to do is get our conscience leveled out with the scriptures. That's the key in the conscience. But it's their conscience that told them, you're guilty, you're ashamed. And this is a good guilt, actually. Again, this is con- we call this conviction in the Bible. But again, like I'll mention, there can also be a false guilt and shame. And so the question then remains, if it's not your conscience that's making you feel guilty, who told you you were naked? Was it your mother? Was it your father? Was it a coach? Was it a teacher? Was it your family? Was it your spouse? See, it goes beyond that, right? You can see how it it starts funneling out that you start listening to the wrong voices. They're going to make you feel guilty for stuff you shouldn't be feeling guilty about. You should only feel guilty if you violate God's principles, God's law. That's the only thing you should feel guilty about. And then you know how to reconcile that. But again, be aware of that because that's working as well. And the devil will use that against you to put you in the trees and make you hide from God. You feel guilty about that, about your life. You won't, you, people won't forgive themselves. Then your standards are now becoming higher than God's many times. You got to be careful about that. So the question then he says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? God already knows this, but he's eliciting a confession from Adam. And again, we're going to stop there because I want to flush out the application on this. And we'll leave it at that. We'll pick it up next time and look at more of this. But let's talk about the application. Fig leaves and hiding in the trees. Fig leaves and hiding in the trees. The application to take away is this pattern that we see with Adam and Eve will be repeated in our lives if we don't catch it. And if we feel godly guilt or human guilt, we will cover ourselves up by performance. So here's the deal. It's what we want other people to see about us. It's what we want to project out. I don't want you to see the real me. I want to project out a front, an identity, a false identity of myself 
that only outside people see. But you're not going to see the shame and nakedness inside of me that someone's put on me or whatever it is. So again, workaholism, achievements, spiritualizing everything they do, rising up the corporate ladder. It's always there to prove something to somebody. Proving to mom and dad that I am valuable. That kind of nonsense. Always to prove something about you is a fig leaf. And you do it through performance. Let's talk about hiding in the trees. Hiding in the trees is our way of escape. Our way of running away from the trauma instead of facing it. Running away from someone's laws, or even God's laws, if we call it, because you could go both ways on this. So we run into drugs, illegal or over-the-counter, doesn't matter. We run into alcohol, sex, porn. Food is, a, is probably number two on the list. People run to food to escape. Yeah. And food becomes very easy because it's accessible and it's cheap. Food's many times used as a drug to escape. And that's what a lot of people do. We have a lot of depression here in the United States, and a lot of people kind of cure that depression by eating. And they eat really bad because they're trying to hold down the pain inside and they're trying to run. Or withdrawing and isolating. You notice how some people are hard to connect to. And they, just, they pull away. They won't share anything about their lives with you, and, and they don't give anything to you. They'll listen to you, but it's a one-way street, but they won't say anything back to you about them, Right? That's called hiding. It's called isolating. Then some people get into bad relationships as a way of escape. Why? Why would they get into a bad relationship with somebody? Because they don't feel good about themselves. They have guilt and shame about something they did or someone told them they did. They don't live up to family values or whatnot, or they feel they're damaged goods. So when you feel like you're damaged goods and you believe you're damaged goods and you don't believe that you're made in the image of Christ and that you're valuable enough for Christ to die for you, you will hook up with people that, let's say you're a seven, you will hook up with a one or a two. You ever come back, you see that in your family and somebody comes comes bringing in and it looks like something the cat would bring in? And you're like, where did you find that person at? Wow, you were really desperate, man. You ever see that? I see it all the time. And you're like, what are you doing? You're so mismatched. They're not. They're not mismatched because they're matching up with what they feel inside of themselves. And they feel like they're a one. They feel like they're damaged goods. So they'll come down, bring the bar down all the way here and say, he's going to be my project. I know I can change him. That's what they tell themselves. And it doesn't work. But they're hiding in bad relationships because that bad person won't make any demands on them. Huh. It's always to escape. What's the answer in all of this? Christ took our shame and guilt on the cross. We don't need to feel any shame and guilt if we have a relationship with him and confess our sins. Our, our guilt and shame has been removed. And we can ask for forgiveness. That's the answer to that. But if you don't know that answer, it will send you off into orbit. I read, sorry, I didn't read. I watched a documentary on Ted Williams. You guys know who Ted Williams is? I was asking some of our younger millennials. And I said, do you know who Ted Williams is? I don't even know who Ted Williams is. And I said, oh, man. Best baseball hitter ever. Hit 406 one year. Unbelievable. You're like, ah, this is a baseball story. And that's not a baseball story. It's a human story. 
Ted Williams obviously played for the Boston Red Sox. Unbelievable career. I think he like retired after he was 40 years old. He just kept playing. It was amazing what he did. Let's set his career aside, but let's understand there's something to Ted Williams that you need to understand about what we're studying today. Ted Williams, the way he was, he grew up in San Diego. His mom and dad basically left him and his brother alone all the time. His mom worked as a volunteer for the Salvation Army, and she was always crossing the border into Tijuana and spending all kinds of time down there. She would leave Ted for like a day, day and a half most times, and him and his brother were left to fend for themselves. His dad was a pickle salesman and an alcoholic, and so his dad would leave for long, long periods of time selling pickles, whatever he did, and being drunk most of the time. So Ted and his brother were basically latchkey kids. They were on their own all the time. And think about the hypocrisy in all of this. You have someone serving Jesus for the Salvation Army, going into Tijuana, trying to do ministry, but leaving her own kids at home and neglecting them. How do you think that works with Ted's life about Christianity? He totally rejected it. It twisted him off. He said this about his mother. My mother was strictly Salvation Army, Salvation Army, strictly non-family. I wouldn't want to be married to a gal like that. That's how he thought of his mother, and she completely neglected him for the Salvation Army. Huh. It hurt him. What Ted said about himself, I was shocked to hear, because it's, it's the whole, what we're studying he said this because of what his parents did by abandoning him and his brother. He said, the world hates me. Everybody is against me. And I'm going to show that they're all wrong. And how did he show it? Performance. See how what he felt about himself? He felt guilt and shame. Because like, why am I not valuable that my parents won't even take care of me? So he rechanneled that. He became extremely angry. Ted was a very angry individual. Extremely a rageaholic, man. He said he'd just fly off the handle. You know why, where his rage and anger came from? It was directed to his parents. Do you know his parents never saw one major league game in his whole career? He played for 20 years. They never went to one game of Ted's. Do you know the only time his parents got involved in Ted's life is when he signed his signing bonus with the Boston Red Sox. They were there because dad and mom wanted a cut out of the bonus check. Oh, do you think you understand where the rage is coming from? Oh, oh. So Ted's brother turned to a life of crime. Ted turned to baseball, and what Ted did, he literally said this, he would channel his anger through that bat at that ball. And all his anger directed to his mom and dad would go right into that ball as he hit it and became the best hitter on the planet. There's never one, anyone that close. He also had 2015 vision, too, that helped him out, too. But nonetheless... His whole destiny was to prove that he was valuable and not just, you know, not worth anything to anybody. 
he was an atheist. He died as an atheist. His kids are atheists, by the way. So you know what they did? They had no, no Christianity whatsoever. You know what they did with Ted's body? He's frozen. The kids froze him in cryogenics, like Walt Disney. They froze him because they don't have any view of the afterlife because they think it's just all about here. And Ted th- thought it was all about here. And so they froze him in hopes that one day they'll figure out cancer or whatever the disease was that killed him and, and reanimate his body. What's nonsense? You know that's not going to work. His soul is gone. But I want you to think about this. Everything you just learned today happened to Ted. Now, it wasn't God putting the standards on him, so to speak, but it was his parents doing it to him, making him feel shame and guilt by just simply abandoning him. You had to think of what he thought of as a child. Why are my parents not here? Why does my mom care more about the Salvation Army than me? Well, you can totally see why he wouldn't want to have anything to do with Jesus because his mom represented Jesus to him. And he died as an atheist. Guys, this, this whole thing of fig leaves, and you can see the performance, and he excelled. It actually hurt him. His sin hurt him because it kept him away from God because it was his fig leaf. And he hid in baseball is where he hid. It's the whole story. It's the whole drama that you're, you're noticing. Guys, the solution then is this. The Messiah died on a tree and bore our guilt and shame. We don't need to feel guilt and shame anymore if we have been forgiven. If you do violate a sin of the Lord and sin against the Lord, it's simple. Confess it, repent, and you can have that restoration with God and walk in the cool of the day with the Lord again. He makes it that simple, but it cost him his son. That was the solution. And you'll see this later on, this drama play out as God brings the solution to Adam and Eve to rectify the situation and to rectify it for us. Hard lesson, but these are the consequences of acting independent from God. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.